0: Welcome back to The Heidi Allen Case, Central New York's Most Enduring Mystery. I'm Ryan Saldoando. Don't forget, you can hear all of the episodes in this series online at wrvo.org or on iTunes. In episode three, we left off with a new round of hearings surrounding Gary Thibodeau's involvement in the kidnapping of Heidi Allen that were about to start in January of 2015. Heidi's family had accepted the fate of their loved one, and they supported law enforcement throughout this entire process. In the courtroom, tensions between Gary Thibodeau's lawyer, Lisa Peebles, and the Oswego County District Attorney, Greg Oakes kept rising due to how strongly they felt about their respective positions. The hearings were about to start heating up, and would include information from dozens of people who had something to say about Gary Thibodeau and the other group of men who were accused of kidnapping Heidi. Just as a reminder, these men were James Thumperstein, Michael Borer, and Roger Breckenridge. Gary Thibodeau was dying at this point, and it became a race for Lisa Peebles to get him out of prison before he lost the opportunity to be a free man. This is episode four, that's all we can do for now. Let's take a step back from the beginning of the January 2015 hearings and go back to the fall of 2014. In the last episode, we heard Lisa Peebles and then Syracuse.com reporter John O'Brien talk about the work they did to prepare for the hearings. Part of that work came in the late summer through the fall of 2014. That's when the area around the cabin that Tanya Priest claimed Heidi's body was brought to and disposed of was searched. Both the Oswego County Sheriff's investigators and the Federal Public Defender's Office led by Lisa Peebles conducted their own searches. The cabin was said to be owned by the family of Jennifer Westcott at the time of Heidi's kidnapping. Here's Peebles and John O'Brien's recollections of their search, which included Peebles' investigator, Dick Homan. We came
1: together when we decided, and they decided, it was time to go out and look for Heidi in the woods because the confession that um, Thumper gave was a location and a cabin. So I went out with um, Dick Hommon, and interviewed people. We located a cabin, and we looked there. There was nothing there, but then we got a tip from a neighbor once this first story ran, said, there's another cabin. And that's how we got to the one where the dogs, cadaver dogs hit.
2: And, you know, the the perplexing thing about all of this was they never did anything after the initial interview of Westcott to try to locate whether there actually was any sort of structure or cabin in that area because when they were questioned about it they would say oh the area is too vast it's too big you know we're not going to search it and that was the feedback that we got from the district attorney at the time so that's why there were times before I even recruited John to become involved in the case where Dick and I were wandering through the woods Had no real idea where we were, trying to find any structure or cabin or knocking on doors and asking people if they knew of any place. But like John said, it was after he published the first article when a woman came forward to point out a a structure that did turn out to be a place that was this torn up cabin structure where cadaver dogs alerted and not just the trooper, state trooper, I took cadaver dogs back in October. That happened in July, and both the dogs alerted in the exact same spot. They indicated, which is even more, which is even stronger than alerting, they indicated the presence of human remains. And both the handlers were quite confident, and their dogs had actually found human remains in the past. So Um, unfortunately, what may or may not have been left, um, was not enough to, it was trace in the soil, um, or whatever the case may be, but, you know, so we're quite certain that she was there at some point.
0: Gary's team searched for Heidi's remains in the woods and just could not find enough evidence. Both peoples and O'Brien believe Heidi was there at some point, but they say investigators for the sheriff's office didn't do enough to pursue it. Monday, January 12, 2015 was the official start of Gary's final push for freedom. He had Lisa Peebles fighting for him in the courtroom, which provided something to Gary that had not existed in years. Hope. Opposing them was the Oswego County District Attorney, Greg Oaks, who had the support of law enforcement and Heidi's family backing him up. These hearings brought the points of view of many people into the scope of the court, including the men who were accused. Gary Thibodeau's legal team was stuck playing catch up after receiving many boxes of materials relevant to the case just three days earlier from the district attorney's office. And with that, the hearings were starting to get off the ground. When the testimony started on that Monday, there were many people with convoluted stories that contradicted each other. but. The main point here is to understand that the defense was working to prove that Gary Thibodeau was not guilty by proving the possibility that the other men accused by Tanya Priest, Thumperstein, Mike Bohrer, and Roger Breckenridge, were the ones who kidnapped Heidi. We already know what Tanya had to say about these men, but what else is there about them that could incriminate them? At the time of the hearing, Thumper was already serving life in prison for the murder of his wife and another man. Now, we'll get into the background of Mike Bohrer, as explained by Lisa Peebles, and briefly John O'Brien. Obviously, Peebles spent a long time working to prove Bohrer was involved in Heidi's kidnapping, so her point of view reflects that at times. But she does do a good job at summing up Bohrer's past criminal activity and how she believes it pertains to his potential involvement in the Heidi Allen case.
2: One of the interesting pieces was this mystery man, Michael Bohr. They interviewed him, and it's on audio. And a lot of what he said just raised a lot of red flags. He would never commit any violent act. Heidi Ellen was the same age as his daughter. He took an interest in the case. Just some bizarre answers that he was giving. So I made a request that they investigate him. Does he even have daughters Heidi Allen's age? Would would that be true? Um, is that why he would be interested in this case? And I was told the judge at the time when I made my request suggested that I could do it at my own expense. The sheriff's department had no further obligation as far as investigating Michael Bohr. He denied any involvement. So we discovered... Um, his social security number had been issued out of Wisconsin, so I had my investigator run a background check, and that's where we kind of unraveled his past. We found that he had attempted to kidnap a woman in the middle of the night, followed her home from work and with his brother, and they tried to stuff her in the backseat of his Mustang. They weren't successful. She got away. He was prosecuted. Also, there was another woman. He tried to run off the road in the middle of the night, and she was hysterical and ran to a police department. He was banging on her window. Yeah, trying to get her out of the car. And um, he was also a suspect in a murder, uh, an attempted murder slash rape in Beacon, New York, where he lived. And once I discovered the initial attempted kidnapping of the first woman, I brought it to the court's attention, was trying to get that information as part of our evidentiary hearing. Uh, The DA's office objected. I suggested there were more victims. The DA's office said I was speculating. I didn't have access. I knew something happened in Beacon. I couldn't get those reports. I didn't know what. I knew something. And um, eventually they uncovered that there were arrest reports and he was a suspect in an attempted murder-rape.
0: This is all important information. But the story that really stands out comes from Heidi Allen's cousin, Melissa Searles. According to a court document obtained from the office of Lisa Peebles, Heidi's bracelet that Melissa had given her ended up in Melissa's mailbox sometime in the mid-2000s. Melissa came forward to Peebles in 2015 after becoming aware of handwritten notes from Michael Bohrer saying that Heidi had hidden a bracelet in the seat of the vehicle she was abducted in. It's impossible to know for sure how involved Borer actually was with the bracelet ending up in Melissa's mailbox, but the circumstance of the situation was strong enough for the defense to cling on to. It was also significant because as far as I was able to figure out, it was the first time that one of Heidi's family members gave evidence that suggested Gary Thibodeau did not kidnap Heidi. There's another story about Borer that is pretty interesting, and this one comes from Teresa Crawford, Richard Thibodeau's longtime girlfriend.
3: Michael Bohr one time, a matter of fact, when Dick got arrested, he came to our house. Big briefcase. Supposedly he was private investigator for the Allen family. So we thought, okay. We invited him in, sat at my kitchen table, had coffee with him. We didn't know. I mean, like I said, he looked official. He looked like, you know, asking us all these questions. And we're answering them. We're trying to help. You know, we're trying to bring this girl home. Any chance we had you know, come to find out it was him. And I, I was like, I just couldn't believe it.
0: D.A. Oakes was candid about the Bohr situation, and it was clear his point was that he tried to remain fair to Peoples and her team throughout the entire process.
4: The defense found some of the information regarding Michael Bohr and his history in Milwaukee, um, which, again, we had done a criminal history search and we didn't find it. And quite frankly, we're still not clear why it didn't show up on the search that we did, um, but after we were made aware of that, we conducted further investigation, and we learned of, you know, the charges, and the stuff that occurred in Beacon City, uh, where he was never charged or arrested, but certainly was a person of interest, and we disclosed that to the defense, because that's our job, and, you know, anytime we came up with information that was favorable to the defense, uh, we turned it over to the defense.
0: I was never able to contact Borer but his potential involvement with the case became one of the main focal points for Peebles and the defense. Borer testified at the hearings, and his obsession with the case was brought up frequently. There were questions about Heidi's bracelet and why he was in possession of so many news stories and documents regarding Heidi. Borer is on record saying that he would never kill because he's not going to hell for nobody. He said he took Heidi's kidnapping personally because he had a daughter the same age as Heidi. Peebles claim she was told to pursue Bore's past in her own time and it led to some breakthroughs for her as we heard. But there was more evidence to get into. Roger Breckenridge was the other man that Tanya Priest claimed to be involved. We know he used to be involved with Jennifer Westcott and she also identified him as the reason she would never say anything because he scared her. In a 2014 interview with John O'Brien, Breckenridge admitted to being friends with Michael Bohrer in 1994 when Heidi was kidnapped. That is significant, because prior to the interview, Breckenridge had made a statement saying he did not meet Borer until the late 2000s. The reason these men were all included together is because of their involvement with a local junkyard that was owned by a man named Richard Murtaugh. Steen and Breckenridge had worked there, while Borer owned a store nearby. Interestingly enough, Steen threw Breckenridge under the bus during his testimony. He claimed Breckenridge admitted his involvement in the kidnapping to him several times, and also stated he thought Breckenridge was just blowing smoke. Steen's story went on to say that a drunk Breckenridge was talking about how Heidi's remains were in a van that Steen had picked up from Murtaugh's junkyard. Both Steen and Murtaugh claimed Breckenridge was not telling the truth. This story fits with one of the claims against the three men that had gone around that Heidi's body had been inside a van at the junkyard, and they crushed it with her body still inside. Steen admitted during the hearing that he had taken a shipment of junked vehicles to somewhere in Ontario, Canada. Here's the most confusing part about what the three men testified. Thumper Steen claimed he knew Roger Breckenridge and considered him a social acquaintance, but he did not know Michael Bohrer. Breckenridge admitted to doing drugs with Thumper, but said he only met Borer once. Borer was consistent with this as well. If these guys really didn't know each other, it gets harder to place them all together. But, let's slow down here because we just covered a lot. Basically, the men all had different stories, and they were all sticking to their claims of innocence. They all had the same stories about their past with each other, How was anything going to change for Gary if the testimony was contradictory? More than one person who took the stand provided testimony against these men, and that testimony was some of the strongest the defense had to try and get Gary Thibodeau out of prison. There were more people who testified than I will list here, but I chose a few who had compelling statements against Steen, Borer, and Breckenridge. Because there has already been so many names mentioned, and the information is the most important thing to take away. I'll call them Persons 1 through 4. Person 1, who used to work for Steen, claimed that a few years after Gary Thibodeau was convicted, Steen told him in front of his sons that Heidi was long gone, she was in Canada, and that the Thibodeau boys didn't do it. Person 2 testified that Steen told her that he helped dispose of Heidi's body after other people kidnapped and killed her as part of an initiation to a motorcycle gang. Person 3 was another woman who testified, and she had formerly worked for Michael Bohrer. She claims Borer threatened he would do it to her as he did to Heidi, and it prompted her to quit her job. She maintained Borer never admitted to her that he killed Heidi Allen. Person 4 is married to Roger Breckenridge's nephew, and she contacted the Oswego County Sheriff's Department in August 2011 because she heard Breckenridge say that Heidi was a rat who would never be found. Person 4 testified that that was not the only time he said things like that. And when she tried contacting the sheriff's department again in 2014, they did not respond to her call. These are just a few examples of testimony against the new suspects, but we also have to consider the other big argument that was going on. Heidi was allegedly reporting information about drug users to law enforcement back in 1994, which adds a whole different layer here. Steen, Borer, and Breckenridge all used drugs to some degree. Gary was also a drug user. There were different stories from different people that Heidi had been using drugs with all of these men at different times, and for that, it really comes down to who you choose to believe. The legal process here was contentious still, and based on the way things were going, it would remain that way until the end. D.A. Oaks had confidence in the evidence against Gary Thibodeau, and Peebles believed Gary was innocent. Proceedings in court continued for the following months, but things just seemed to keep coming up in favor of Oakes, despite all of the new evidence against the three other men. Through the entire legal process and his declining health, Gary began to accept what had happened with his life, and he really appreciated that his legal team truly believed him and made such a strong effort to clear his name. The court process continued to roll on, but now we've covered all of the big points that were used as evidence. Both sides did their investigations, and they worked for years to prove who was right and who was wrong and who was innocent and who was guilty. It would take a very long time to explain all of the steps of the legal appeals that took place, but we already know the arguments, so let's get to the end. In early 2018, the case had made its way all the way to the highest court in New York State, where it would be decided by a panel of seven judges. What basically ended up happening is that most of the testimony against Steen, Breckenridge, and Boer was determined to be hearsay. And because Jennifer Westcott recanted what she said in the recorded phone call with Tanya Priest, that was discredited too. The people brought to the stand who had things to say that made Gary sound more innocent were not regarded as credible enough witnesses to have an effect on the outcome. That's in contrast to the original trials two decades earlier the jailhouse informants were interpreted as very legitimate. The judges heard Gary's final appeal in April 2018, and they decided on it by June. By a four to three vote, it was decided that Gary Thibodeau's conviction would not be overturned because the majority of judges did not find all of the new evidence trustworthy enough. Greg Oakes is still the Oswego County District Attorney, and here are his current thoughts with how everything played out.
4: I'm not certain what the result of a new trial would have been. Um, certainly, it potentially could have ended in an acquittal, but it could have also ended in a conviction. Um, there was strong and compelling evidence against Gary Thibodeau. Um, even though we didn't have uh, direct forensic evidence, um, there was compelling information.
0: It is worth noting that the three judges who voted in favor of Gary receiving a new trial fell very strongly, too. Even the most powerful judges in the state's highest court couldn't come to an agreement. After this, the hope for Gary to get out to have that beer and go fishing was all but over. By the summer of 2018, he couldn't walk, he could barely talk, but in some ways he still remained the same man he was all along. Here's a description of Gary from Lisa Peebles, and it really shows how despite all of the other stuff going on, he managed to keep his sense of humor.
2: Gary has a unique, uh, funny sense of humor, and he, I think, has always been that way. He's kind of loud and speaks his mind, but very social and very outgoing and just a funny guy. And I think you know, he was probably a lot more arrogant back in 1994. Uh, I think he would probably agree with that. Um, And today, you know, he's a different person. I mean, he was beaten down and institutionalized after all these years.
0: On August 12th, 2018, Gary Thibodeau died in hospice care at the Coxsackie Correctional Facility at the age of 64. That brings us to present day. Before we get to Gary and Heidi, let's wrap up with everyone else first. Regardless of who you believe, the two most important people in this story are gone and can't have the opportunity to speak for themselves. For everyone else, there was just one question left to ask. What's next? For Lisa Peebles and John O'Brien, they're obviously saddened by the decision of the court and the passing of Gary, who became their good friend at the end of his life. But the two of them now work together in the public defender's office and have no regrets about fighting so hard for Gary.
2: You hope that people learn lessons from experiences and um, in this instance, maybe even though people are not acknowledging or admitting things that have happened that they'll think twice in the future when they're doing things and be a little more thorough and not necessarily jump to conclusions or force um, evidence where it's not there. Uh, and and keep an open mind about the investigation. But, um, you know, our judicial system has flaws, and we're writing a book about our experience with this case and how things, I guess, unraveled and developed and in the hopes that it will educate people um, and the people that had an interest in this case. And, you know, that's what we hope. We can only hope that... The process educated people about our system and the investigation and what really happened. And will we ever find Heidi Allen's remains? I mean, that's left to be seen. Um, It could happen um, at some point, and and new information could develop. Um, But, you know, I'm not going to be out there digging around because Gary's gone, and I don't have any interest at this point
1: but justice can still be done here. I mean, these three guys very likely did it. One of them's gonna be in prison for the rest of his life, but two of them are not, and they're out, and they're free, and there may be others involved. And there are other people out there who know something. They know more, and they could come forward. Um, the, I, it would be nice if the sheriff's office was more receptive to that, if they were more, you know, proactive and went after things harder than and they could have uh, with Jennifer. They didn't. Um, there's a new sheriff here um, who's not, who's from outside, he's not come up through the ranks so he maybe he'd be more willing to do that but maybe someone would come forward and you know people keep saying the most important thing is you know where's Heidi? Yeah it is but where's Justice? You know where's, why aren't these guys being held? And there's also Richard you know he's sitting over there, he was acquitted You know, he didn't do it, but if the actual kidnappers and killers were brought to justice, he would be even freer. I mean, feel better, and, and, you know, Gary's soul might be happier.
0: For Richard, he's lost a lot, but he says he still has hope the Allen family will accept that he and Gary did not kidnap Heidi.
3: Basically, that's what it is, and to uh, let the Allen family know that we are not the people who kidnapped their sister. Uh, Lisa, Lisa, I guess her name's Lisa Busky, yes. I would like to let her know that we are not the people who done this. I could not imagine someone kidnapping my sister not knowing who done it, but don't think I couldn't imagine myself thinking that these people didn't do something when there's somebody else out there that did it. It it just, that's what gets me the most, is why she trusts the sheriff's department so much. I I, I just don't understand how she could, knowing that they got the wrong people. You know, how can you live with yourself thinking that they got the right people and they really don't? You know, don't you stop and think. Do they really have the right people? Hello? I don't know. You know, it's, that's my thought. I, I would want to really know who done this.
0: For Lisa Buskey, she still believes in the job that the local law enforcement has done. And regardless of what may or may not happen in the future, she still finds comfort in the way Heidi and the Allen family have been treated by the community.
5: Even with the new sheriff, we were the first thing on his agenda. So they haven't forgotten. They haven't forgotten Heidi. My mom passed away three years ago. Well, two and a half. It would be three years this September on Heidi's birthday. And... They haven't forgotten even the new sheriff, Sheriff Hilton's, his goal is to bring Heidi home. So they can't do any more than that. They follow up every lead. They keep in contact with us. I have their home phone numbers. I have their private cells. I have their work cells. And they encourage us to call 24-7. And they call me. Um, So... I can't ask for any more than that. I know a lot of families of missing and they don't have um, open relationships with their law enforcement. They don't have the luxury of walking in and just visiting with law enforcement. The law enforcement does not follow up with the families and the Oswego County Sheriff's and the DA's office go above and beyond to keep the family included. I can't ask for more than that because most families don't even have that. On April 3rd, 1994, people changed out of their Sunday clothes, switched into jeans and boots and jackets, brought their Easter dinners up to the New Haven Fire Department and sacrificed their Easter holiday to search for Heidi. And they've never forgotten there's a family and every year on Heidi's birthday in September, they tie two orange ribbons to the tree at the end of their driveway. And every April 3rd, they put up two new orange ribbons and take down the worn ones, and send us a note and say, we've, we've updated the orange ribbons, we'll never give up. And there's days I drive out of my way just to drive by this house so I can see the orange ribbons, because the community has never forgotten. The original poster still hangs in the post office. The sheriff has the original um, flyer hanging up on a bulletin board, and Sheriff Hilton said the bulletin board's going back up after they paint the walls because that's the focus.
0: To some things up here, there is a lot of stuff that happened that is seriously impossible to make sense of. I have spent months trying to understand why things happened the way they did, and it just doesn't add up. Someone involved with this case told me something I've held on to after we finished our interview, and I'll share it with you now. It was that any two reasonable people could be presented with all of the available information and reach two vastly opposite conclusions. Based on everything presented over the last four episodes, I believe that to be true. The unique thing about this case is the lack of physical evidence. Without it, the last 25 years have been a guessing game, It's nothing against the court system, but circumstantial or compelling evidence still has not led us to Heidi's body. The people who support law enforcement will say that there is more than enough evidence to show that Gary is guilty. The people who support Gary will point to the lack of physical evidence and the lack of a motive. I'm confident in saying that everyone who got involved in this case has an opinion, and they will stand behind what they believe no matter what. But... This case shows that judges and police officers and lawyers on both sides are all just regular people trying to do their best like everyone else. Until Heidi's body is found, no theory about what happened is more credible than any other because there are two sides to every coin. Everyone has valid reasoning for the most part, but a lot of it is really just guesses. But beyond all of the guessing that has taken place, it's really important to consider the human element here with Gary Thibodeau and Heidi Allen. Starting with Gary, and using the lens of hindsight, he really lived an unbelievable life. If you look at it from the perspective of someone who's convinced that Gary really kidnapped Heidi, he got caught and spent his life in prison for it. But if he really was innocent, his life became a tragedy of its own. If he was innocent, his life was taken from him in a pretty cruel way. From the moment he and Richard became suspects through the end of his life, Gary lost everything. He lost his job, his home, his wife, and his freedom. Until the last second he was alive, he was adamant he was not the man who kidnapped Heidi Allen. He just wanted to go fishing and have a beer. It's really heartbreaking to look at it from that perspective, because if he really was innocent, the criminal justice system took away Gary's life as he knew it. And speaking of Heidi, we can look back on her life with less questions and hypotheticals. Heidi was a smart, athletic, pretty young woman who never received the chance to live out her life the way she was supposed to. Heidi's sister, Lisa Busky, said Heidi was probably going to work with kids. She was in a loving relationship with her boyfriend, and they never got to see it through. There was a whole life ahead of her that she never got to explore because it was taken away from her that Easter morning in 1994. Despite whatever information has come up in the years since, it doesn't change the fact that heidi was still pretty much a kid even if you were convinced enough by the informant theory she was still 18 years old i don't think it's a stretch to say that nothing heidi did warranted what happened from april 3rd 1994 to present day at the end of the day though nobody really knows what happened the morning of april 3rd 1994 at the dnw except for whoever kidnapped heidi and heidi herself whatever happens next is unknown And at this point, there's nothing left to do but find Heidi and make sure her name is remembered. Because of that, the case of Heidi Allen's kidnapping in New Haven will continue to be Central New York's most enduring mystery. One last thing, I'd like to direct you to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children and their website, missingkids.com. Lisa Buskey told me about the organization And to help them find more missing children, you can donate at their website. This series is produced by WRVO Public Media. It was written and researched by me, Ryan Zaldolando, with help from Catherine Loper, Jason Smith, and Leah Landry. Mark Lavonier produced this episode and also composed and performed the music heard in this series. Before we end, I'd like to thank a lot of people. First, Catherine Loper for helping get this podcast off the ground and guiding me through the entire process. Mark Levonier for making me sound better than anyone else could. Jason Smith for dealing with all the headaches I've given him. And Leo Landry for making everything look incredible. I'd also like to credit my friends Zach Florio, Mickey Riley, and Ethan Magrum for helping me out on this project. And finally, thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed doing it.